my, my son said to me not too long ago, I said something, and he said, you remind us of grand buddy. That's what they call my dad. And, and also recently I was just sitting in a chair minding my own business, and my wife said, you look just like your dad. So I've got to come to grips with the fact that I'm turning into my dad. Now, I want you to understand that the Lord wants you to turn into somebody. And it's not primarily your parents. The Lord desires that you turn in to Jesus, that you become more and more like him. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans 8 that, that God is working to conform us to the image of his son. That's what he's doing in your life right now. He's making you more like Jesus. Well, in our text this morning, we see a wonderful Old Testament illustration of what it means to look like Jesus. You know, parts of the Old Testament are for instruction. They help us to understand some things about God and about ourselves and about the world and about God's plan of redemption. Sometimes God's Word in the Old Testament just inspires us. It, it fuels our fire and passion for the Lord. And sometimes the Old Testament serves as an illustration of New Testament principles. And as I was studying this interaction uh, in 1 Samuel 20 between David and Jonathan, I kept, I, I kept thinking about the New Testament truths that Jonathan's life represented. And so I want you to see Jonathan from that perspective, an illustration of what Christ-centered virtue looks like. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Happy Palm Sunday. I love Palm Sunday. I love this week, this Passion Week, leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the cornerstone of our faith, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ that is our only hope. And so I'm looking forward to kicking that off tonight with you as we get together at 6 for a special service and, and, uh, and observe the Lord's Supper together. It's going to be a great time for us to prepare our hearts and our families for celebrating Jesus uh, this week. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, For... From it you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without dis disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. 
For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We're so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love. We're so grateful for your presence here today as we gather to worship you, to praise your great name. Uh, Lord, we know your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And in some way in which we can't fully comprehend, when, when your people gather with one heart, one spirit, and praise your great name, you draw near. And we thank you this morning for your nearness. And Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to, to work in our lives. But we ask you to take the, the truths of Scripture and apply them to our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see those truths. And, and give us the wherewithal, Lord, the courage to apply those truths to our life. All is vain. Unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Lord, have your way in our midst. Establish my steps in your word. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed through 1 Samuel, we've seen that the Lord named the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. But because of Saul's disobedience, the Lord decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, a young man by the name of David. But even though God anointed David the next king, there would still be a time period where Saul would sit on the throne before David would be a recognized king by the rest of the nation. And this time period between David's anointing and his actual reigning as king would be a very difficult time for David. As a matter of fact, Saul, the reigning king, was filled with jealousy concerning David so that he had a desire to murder David. He was filled with murderous intentions. And we saw in 1 Samuel 19 how the Lord delivered David from certain death four times. Four times he provided a way of escape for David. And here in chapter 20, verse 1, we see that David fled from Naoth and Ramah. Now remember, that's where Samuel was, the prophet of God, the man of God. He went to Samuel for counsel, but he realized that Saul would hunt him down no matter where he was. He knew he was not safe with Samuel. So he flees from Samuel, and he finds Jonathan, King Saul's son, and says, why does your father want to kill me? What is going on here? And we see this exchange and this plan develop between David and his good friend Jonathan. Now again, Jonathan in this chapter is a powerful illustration of Christ-centered virtue. He's a, a powerful illustration of some New Testament principles that I'll show you as we walk through this passage. There are uh, three great virtues exemplified in this passage. First of all, I want you to see the power of covenant. The power of covenant. Look what David says in verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David's saying our friendship is based upon a covenant. Now, if you remember, uh, a few chapters ago, we see uh, David and Jonathan enter into this, this wonderful relationship, this wonderful friendship with one another. And the Bible says in chapter 18, that Jonathan cut a covenant with David. What does it mean to cut a covenant? It means that they institute the practice uh, that we see throughout the Old Testament where they would take animals and cut the animals in half. Then they would divide the two halves of the animals and the two parties entering into an agreement or a covenant would walk between the animals as if to say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, 
if I don't keep my promises, let me become like these animals. So a covenant was serious business. And the Bible says that Jonathan cut a covenant with David. He entered into this, this promise. He would be his faithful friend. And David reminds him of this in chapter 20. You say, wait, what is a covenant technically? Well, here's what a covenant is. This is in your notes. A covenant is an oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way. An oath-bound promise, you see them throughout this, this text, making oaths to one another, swearing uh, in the name of the Lord, the Lord who is between them, sealing this covenant. They are making oath-bound promises, one party pledging to bless or serve another party in some specified way. That is what a covenant is. Now, the idea of covenants, promises that you keep, is being lost in our contemporary society. No one, it seems, keeps their word anymore. It's hard to find someone that is true and faithful to their word. We've totally lost the concept of what covenant is all about. But I want you to understand, as we see exhibited in Jonathan's life, covenant is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And I want you to just think about it like this. We need to consider the role that covenants play in our lives. For example, our relationship with God is based upon covenant. Our relationship with God is based upon covenant. The Bible tells us there's an old covenant where the Lord speaks to his people at Mount Sinai. He gives them his commandments. He gives them the sacrificial system to practice and to put into to place. And the purpose of this old covenant we see in Galatians 3 was to show the people of Israel that they were sinners in need of a Savior. Galatians 3, Paul writes that the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. In other words, God gave them these commandments, but they could not live up to the commandments. They, they, they fell short of the commandments. They were sinners. They had rebelled against God. And the law, the old covenant, was intended to show them their sin and their need for a Savior. They were not intended to live up to the covenant to make themselves righteous before God because no one can live up to the covenant. The old covenant says no one can because we're all sinners, which is a problem. They rebelled against God. They were lost. They were in their iniquity. So God instituted a new covenant to provide for the salvation of those who cannot live up to the old one, which is all of us. Anyone in here ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. We all have. We all have. And so we can't keep the old covenant, so we need a new covenant. And the Bible says the new covenant is, is instituted or inaugurated through Christ. God knows that we're all sinners, separated from him, so he sent his only son to this earth, and Jesus went to the cross as our sinless sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross, listen to this, to die for our sins. He took the punishment that you and I deserve, and then after he died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. And because of that, listen, if any of us will embrace Jesus by faith, if we enter into a relationship with Christ, we step into the promises of a new covenant. Now, all throughout Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there are some foreshadowings of what this new covenant would entail. In the book of Hebrews, it gets more explicit. And here's what the Lord tells us the new covenant is all about. The Lord makes us two great promises for those that know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Promise number one is the complete and full forgiveness of sins. That's pretty good stuff, right? Aren't you glad for forgiveness? When you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, His blood is applied to your spiritual account, and His blood washes away your sin. So promise number one is the complete forgiveness of sins. Promise number two, part of the new covenant, is this. 
inner transformation. The Lord says, not only will I forgive you of your sins, I will create in you a, a new heart so that you can begin to live up to the ideals, the commandments I have for you. So that's the new covenant. He washes away our sins and he gives us a new heart. That's, those are the promises of God. That's the new covenant. So our relationship with God is a covenant. It's a promise God has made us. And by the way, aren't you glad that God is not a capricious God? He's not a God of whims. God keeps his word. He promised you, if you're in Christ, I'll forgive you, I'll change you. We can take that to the bank because God does not change. He always keeps his covenant. So our relationship with God is based upon a covenant. That's pretty important stuff. Secondly, our most important relationships on earth are based upon covenant. For example, marriage. Do you know marriage is a covenant two people enter into before God? It is. As a matter of fact, over in Malachi chapter 2, the Bible declares that God hates divorce. And right before that, we see why God hates divorce. He calls marriage a covenant, an agreement. So the, the throwing in of the towel on a marriage is to violate the covenant, the promises that two people made before God. That, that, that's serious business. I see couples that, that give up on their marriage. They go two separate directions. They, they, they leave one another. They separate. They divorce. And when I talk to someone like that, I like to say this. Tell me what you said on your wedding day. What did you say when you were standing there before your family and friends? Presumably a preacher was there performing the ceremony if you wanted a, 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 you know, a, a, a religious ceremony. There's a preacher there, you're there, your spouse is there. What did you say to one another? You probably said something like, till death do us part, in sickness and in health. And if you said those things, you should not be so quick to just cast that to the side. You made a promise, a covenant before God. Last year, I saw a, a very troubling report. Pat Robertson, who's a well-known a leader in Christendom, he, uh, his ministry sponsors the 700 Club show that's on TV. He was asked by a caller on the show what he should do or what the caller should do um, because his wife had Alzheimer's. And this caller said to Pat Robertson, my wife has Alzheimer's, she's not here anymore, she doesn't know who I am, so what should I do? And Pat Robertson said, this Christian leader said, well, you're free to divorce her. She doesn't know who you are anymore, she's, she's not there anymore, so you're, you're free to, to go your own direction. God will not hold you to that covenant. And I said, wow. That's not what a covenant is. It's not what a covenant is. We say in our covenants, in sickness and in health, even if my spouse gets Alzheimer's and does not know who I am, I promise to be there for my spouse, and I will not violate that covenant. Our marriages are based upon covenant. It's a big deal, and there's power in that, in knowing that you have promised one another that you will be there for one another, and, and nothing will separate you from one another. There's power in knowing that your relationship is a covenant, not just a, an arrangement of two people. A covenant. Now, I don't mean this as any sort of commentary on your past. Maybe you're here and you have some, some failure in past, uh, a past marriage. Some painful things have happened to you in the past. I'm not, I don't bring all this up to, to make you feel guilty about that. There's not a thing you can do to go back and change your past. 
Deal with it with God. Ask God for his help and his, his forgiveness. If you, if you had something that you did wrong. But here's what I'm saying. If you're married now, you're in a covenant. So I can't talk about the past. You can't change your past. But I can say from this point on, keep your covenant to your spouse. Don't leave your marriage. Don't get divorced. You made a covenant before God and before witnesses. Fight for your marriage. In sickness and in health, whether you have a lot of money or no money, fight for your marriage. Why? It's a covenant. It's not boyfriend-girlfriend. A lot of people treat their marriages like they're in high school. Not boyfriend-girlfriend. We don't go surfing on Facebook for old past relationships. This is a covenant. We're, we're faithful to our spouse. Let me give you another earthly relationship that's based upon covenant. Parenting. If you have children, God has entrusted those children to you. And here's your end of the deal. God's giving you the children. Your end is Ephesians 6. It says that parents are to are to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's your end of the deal. So if you're a parent, God's given you children, and you're part of the covenant, your agreement with God is that I will point my kids to Jesus. Can we just make a, a declaration as parents this morning? That our kids will not just hear about Jesus on Sundays. Let, let's make a declaration that on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays, on the way to the ball field, going out to dinner, wherever we go, that we will point our kids to Jesus Christ. That's our end of the bargain. That's our end of the covenant. That's what God expects from us. He gives us the children. He entrusts them to us. Our job is to point them to Jesus with his grace, with his help, with his wisdom. It's a covenant. It's serious business. What about friendships? We see here between Jonathan and David a, a covenant friendship. They are committed to each other's good. They made some, some solemn vows and promises to one another that would be tested, but they maintained their friendship. You say, wait, I've never made a formal covenant with a friend. We sat down and over coffee and said, I, Wade Humphreys, will be a faithful friend to you. No, we don't, we don't, we don't, do, we don't do that. Maybe it's not a bad idea. Maybe right in, right in your front of your Bible, so-and-so is my faithful friend. I will be there for them, hold them accountable, encourage them, do what's best for them. Maybe that's not a bad idea. But whether you've entered into a formal covenant or not, God is over your relationships. And we ought to want to be a faithful friend that does what's best for our friend because of the God we serve. It's as if we're saying... I'll be a faithful friend because of my relationship with God. I want to honor Him by being a true friend to you. See, friendship's not just about you. It's about the God you serve. It's about reflecting His love into someone else's life. David Samura writes this. Unless a friendship is seasoned by a taste of trust in the one who is beyond two of them, that friendship cannot be wonderful as Jonathan's friendship with David was. In other words, we need more in our friendships than just just us saying we're going to be friends. We need to realize that God's over all of that. And we're going to be faithful friends because of God over our relationships. So our most important relationships on earth are based upon covenant. We should keep our end of the bargain. We should keep our end of the covenant and be faithful in that. Let me share this with you. 
our relationship with our church is based upon covenant. Did you know that? I grew up in the prototypical Southern Baptist church. We had a piano on one side, organ on the other. Anybody grew up in church like that? And on the back wall on either side of the baptistry, there were two signs that had your numbers for Sunday school and training union. Anybody remember that? I have fond memories of, of that church. But I remember there was some big framed document over on the wall that no one ever looked at, even knew what it contained. It's called the church covenant. One day, true story, I was a little guy, and I was standing by my mom in church, we're standing in a pew, and, and uh, I was kind of straining looking at that big document on the wall, and I leaned over to her and I said, Mom, what's the church coconut? <laughs> it was written in fancy script, and I couldn't, re I, you know, I couldn't re read it good. And mom got tickled. I remember she got tickled in church and she almost lost it. She, she held it together somehow. But it wasn't church coconut, it was church covenant. Can, can I tell you this? Membership in a church ought to mean something. It ought to mean something. It, it, this is not a country club where we just pay our dues and show up or get involved whenever we want to. It's not a gym membership where you pay your dues and never show up. It's not what, it's not what it is. Membership means something. Don't think of your church membership as, as a country club. Think of it more like joining the army. When you join the army, you enlist and you get signed up. Uh, before you go into a active duty, you make some oaths. To protect and, protect and defend the nation, our freedom, our liberty. You make some very solemn vows as a soldier. And that's a better picture of what church membership looks like. When we join a church, we're not saying, okay, uh, give me what I want, make me comfortable, and if I feel like it, maybe I'll do something, maybe I'll show up, maybe I'll serve. No, no, no. You're in the Lord's army. We are engaged in a very real conflict against the kingdom of darkness. And listen, we need you to fight. If you're a member of this church, we need you to fight. When you join, you are enlisting for service. And that ought to mean something. Not just show up whenever you want to, but hey, I'm in the Lord's army. Paul uses a compelling illustration over in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says that the body of Christ is like a human body. And all parts are important. The hand can't say the foot, I don't need your foot. All parts of a body are important. And if you are a member of Longview Point Baptist Church, you are a part of the body of Christ. And if you are not fulfilling your role, you are hurting the body. If you're not serving, if you're not attending, if you're not working, if you're not supporting, then you are hurting the body of Christ. That's a totally different mindset from American Christianity, right? I'll show up when I want to, as long as you hold my attention, and when you stop holding my attention, I'll go somewhere else and show up. Give me the show, give me the right music, give me the right preacher, and, and give me the right programs, and if we have all that, then I'll stick around and maybe be there and grace you with my presence. That is not, that is not New Testament church membership. It's like joining the army. It's a covenant. By the way, we have one. We have a church covenant. It's not on the wall. It's in our Constitution and bylaws, but we have a church covenant. We say, when I join, I want to be a, a, a part of this church that serves and makes a difference and supports and protects. We have that here. If you join, you're living under that covenant. And so our relationship with our church is based upon covenant. 
Let me tell you this. There's power in knowing that our relationships are based upon someone and something that is firm and lasting. When you know that you are in covenant relationships with your, with your spouse, your kids, your friends, your church, when you know that there's something stronger than just your feelings, but you are, you are joining into that, you are entering into that relationship based upon promises and covenant and being faithful and keeping your word, when you know there's a covenant between you and another party, there is power and freedom in that. When we start to live this kind of life, we'll see the power of covenant. You know, even kids understand the power of covenant, don't they? Growing up as little kids, we learn, first off, cross my heart and hope to die. What's that? It's a covenant. I- I'm making an oath that, that I'm going to do what I'm saying I'm going to do. It, maybe they understand it better than we do. The power of covenant. But there's a second New Testament principle exemplified in this text. Not only the power of covenant, there is the sacrificial love of a friend. The sacrificial love of a friend. We see here at the beginning of chapter 20 that David and Jonathan come up with a plan. David says, I'm going to not come to to the feast with your father. And when I don't show up, how he responds will indicate what's in his heart. If he doesn't think it's a big deal that I'm not there, that I've gone to Bethlehem, then we know maybe he doesn't want to kill me anymore. But if he's enraged, we know his plans were to kill me when I showed up. And so I, I want you to go and... And test your father. See where he is on this whole issue. And Jonathan said, what's going to be the sign? How are we going to know what he decides? And in verse 11 it says, come let us go out into the field, Jonathan said. So both of them went out in the field. They're going to go out where no one's listening, no listening ears, and enter into this this plan so that Jonathan can communicate to David the condition of his father. And here's what they plan. They say, okay, I'll go, and if, if my father is angry, and I know he still wants to kill you, I'll come out to the field. And I'll shoot the arrows, and I'll say to the boy picking up my arrows, the arrows are beyond you. When I say the arrows are beyond you, David, I'm saying you need to run. My dad wants to kill you. If I say the arrows are over to the side, that means that my dad doesn't want to kill you anymore. So you'll be fine to come to his palace. That's their plan. Now let's look at the plan executed. Look what it says in verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual in the seat by the wall, and then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident, he is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty, so Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now look in verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. Why? His heart was still filled with murder. His anger burned against Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother? Look in verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Now listen to me. Saul says something here out of anger that is absolutely true. He says, Jonathan, why are you siding with David? Don't you understand, as long as David is alive, you will not be the next king of Israel. In this day and time, it was customary for a king to appoint his son to be a successor. So when the king died, the son would become the next king. 
But Saul recognizes God's hand is on David. He recognizes that God's going to give the kingdom to David. So Saul says, listen, as long as David is alive, Jonathan, you will not be the next king. Those are the stakes. Are you content with being a friend to David and letting him live and not being the next king? The answer to that question was, yes, Jonathan was content to do that because Jonathan goes out, warns his friend David, and David flees to safety. You see, Jonathan was willing to lay down his opportunity to be king for the good of David. Think about that. This, just, this did not happen. He was willing to lay down his opportunity to rule a nation because of his covenant friendship with David. And that is a beautiful illustration of a New Testament principle. The New Testament teaches we are called to lay down our lives for others the way that Christ laid down his life for us. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. I want to show you this very quickly. 1 John chapter 3, near the back of the New Testament. Look what the Bible says in verse 10. Some shocking verses here. The Bible says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Do you understand the import of what was just written there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us that you can discern between sons of God and sons of the devil by the measure of their love for one another. If someone says that they're a follower of Christ and they don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ, they're lying. They're not the real deal. Our love for others is a measure of our authenticity in Christ. Look what it says in the next verse. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know that we're saved if we see a growing love for brothers and sisters in Christ. He who does not love abides in death. He's not truly saved. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now look at 1 John 3.16. We know John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 is wonderful. Look what it says. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John writes, this is what love looks like. When you're willing to lay down your dreams, your plans, your agenda, your desires for the good of someone else. When you're willing to sacrifice for someone else. That is what love looks like. And the measure of that love is Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And so the Bible's clear. If you love someone, you'll lay down your own ideas and plans for the good of someone else. Because that's a model that's modeling ourselves after Jesus laying down his life for us. So that we could be saved. So we're called to lay down our life for, for others in the way, that, the way that Christ laid down his life for us. Are you a sacrificial friend? Or are your relationships, relationships based upon convenience for you? What you can get out of it. 
When you get together with someone that you call a friend, do you do all the talking? Or do you ask them how their life is going? Do you ask them how you can pray for them? How you can be there for them? Are you willing to sacrifice for the good of someone else? That's Christ-like love. And Jonathan exhibited this to his friend David. I read a story recently about two soldiers in World War I. If you've read much about World War I, you know the, 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 the warfare was just brutal. They basically engaged in trench warfare. They would big, uh, dig these, these deep trenches and they would shoot each other from the trenches and occasionally if, if one, side of the, uh, one side of the battle, one group thought they had superior numbers, they would get up and charge and try to take the other trench. And between the trenches was barbed wire and obstacles and, and it, when you got out of your trench and rushed the other trench, you were just shredded to pieces by the opposing bullets. It was a, an awful way to do war. And, and there's a story about one of these fateful charges, this unit gets out of their trench and starts rushing the other unit, and they are just decimated by enemy bullets. The second wave of soldiers is watching all this transpire, and one of the men in the second wave saw his best friend go down in the battle, writhing in pain between the two trenches, in the midst of all that barbed wire. And he's getting ready to jump out, charge into the, the bullets, and, and pull his friend to safety. Before he does, his commanding officer says, no, 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 we can't afford to lose anybody else. He's probably dead. And the commanding officer turned his back and walked down the trench, and this guy got up and ran to his friend. And he got there to his friend, and when he got there, bullets whizzing over, you know what his friend said? His friend said, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. That's self-sacrificial love. I'm willing to risk my own life for your good. That's what Jonathan is showing us in 1 Samuel chapter 20. The sacrificial love of a friend. Oh, I want to be that kind of friend, don't you? But there's a third principle here we're going to look at very quickly. It's the choice to be on God's side. The choice to be on God's side. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. show you where Jonathan makes his decision. It says in verse 35, that it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. He said to this lad, run, find out the arrows which I'm about to shoot. The lad was running. He shot an arrow past him. The lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot. Jonathan called after the lad. Here's the, the code for David. Is not the arrow beyond you? In other words, David... My father is still a murderer. He wants to kill you. Leave. Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. He said, Wait, why do they have all this secrecy and then get together there in the field to talk to one another? Well, presumably no one was around. They thought it was safe to get together and talk. It says they... David fell with his face to the ground. They bowed three times. They kissed each other and wept together. Now, the kissing there is a cultural thing, a way of showing affection. I was in Ecuador this past week, and I was surprised, greeting a few folks, I got kissed. We don't do that here, and I don't want to start that here. Just FYI. It's just a, it was a cultural thing, all right? And they, they're kissing one another. Look what it says. Weeping, David wept the more. 
Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. This act of Jonathan, warning his friend David so he could leave, was an act of treason against the reigning king. Jonathan here was making his decision. If I have to choose between following my dad or following God's will for David to be the next king, I'm going to follow God's will. See, I believe with all my heart, Jonathan understood David was supposed to be the next king. And he wanted to be on the Lord's side. Because look what it says back in verses 13 and 14. It's Jonathan talking here. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, and that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In other words, the Lord brought my father to the throne. May he be with you in the same way. May he bring you to the throne. Huge statement. Look, look what he says in verse 14. If I'm still alive, will you sh not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knew in this day and time when a new king came to the throne, it was customary to kill all of the old king's family. And Jonathan says, will you let me and my household live when you become the next king? He knew David was going to be the next king. And David does. David keeps his end of the covenant. As a matter of fact, over in 2 Samuel, we don't have time to go there, we see some beautiful expressions of grace to Jonathan's descendants, particularly with a man named Mephibosheth. Great story. We see here that, that Jonathan made his decision. Jonathan's choice to help David was a choice to be disloyal to his father. And again, that is a reflection of a New Testament principle. Here it is. Following Christ will lead to difficult decisions regarding earthly relationships. His desire to help David was based on his belief that God had anointed David as king. We learn from that that when you follow God's will, what God wants, when you follow Christ in your life, it will lead to difficult decisions regarding earthly relationships. Let me say it like this. Rarely when you follow Jesus will everyone support you. When you get serious about following Christ, rarely will everyone say, that's a good idea. Usually you'll have naysayers and people that want you to back away from being radical. But when you follow Jesus, I mean really follow him and obey him, whatever that means for your life, you're going to have to make some decisions. Am I going to be loyal to Christ? Or am I going to be loyal to those relationships trying to keep me from following Christ? Jesus discussed this over in Luke chapter 14. Turn there with me. Luke 14. If you don't have this passage marked in your Bible, you need to mark it. It's a wonderful passage. Luke 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them. You know, Jesus was not into just drawing crowds. That was not his ministry. Matter of fact, he sent large crowds away with hard teaching. It says there, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, wait a minute. Jesus said, If anyone follows me and doesn't hate his most important earthly relationships, he's not my disciple. What in the world's going on? I mean, let's just take a spouse, for example. He mentions wife. 
Over in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible commands me as a husband to love my wife just like Christ loves the church. Right? And then here he's saying, if you don't hate your wife, what is going on there? Jesus here is using a powerful literary device. He's using comparison to make a point. And he's saying, if your love for your wife and your children and your father and your mother do not pale in comparison to your love for me, then you're not truly mine. If you take your love for your your family and you compare it to your love for Christ, your love for Christ should be so much greater to the extent that your love for your family looks like hate. Powerful words. And and I, I just tell you, I don't know that I'm here yet. I love my family. I'm telling you, I I love my wife. She's such a gift from God, and I'm just crazy about her. I really am. Love my kids. Last week, we were in Ecuador on a mission trip, and we took our two boys with us, and and we left Abby Faith, our two-year-old girl, uh, here with Claire's parents. She was with her grandparents, and she she had a big time. But I'm just telling you, when we uh, loaded our luggage to pull out of our house, and we left Abby Faith there, that was tough. As a matter of fact, we got to Ecuador, we did a little devotion with our family, and our first devotion was that uh, obeying Christ leads to uh, difficult goodbyes. We talked about Paul in Ephesus leaving the loved ones in Ephesus to go to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be arrested. We said, when you follow Christ, when you obey Christ, it may lead to some difficult goodbyes with family. My, I'm, I'm crazy about my family. I know you are too. The question is, how does that love look when stacked up against your love for Christ. Jonathan was willing to follow God's will for David to be the next king and commit treason in his most important earthly relationship, his dad. If you're obeying Christ and a family member comes and says, don't do it! What you do in that moment reveals your love for Jesus. So Jonathan exemplifies the choice to be on God's side. Even if it brought him to cross purposes with his family. And so let me give you a closing thought. We look at Jonathan's example. Some New Testament principles being lived out in his life. The closing thought is this. A Christ-centered life will lead to godly virtue for the glory of God. Christ-centered life will lead to godly virtue for the glory of God. If you will focus your life on Christ, if you'll make sure He's the center of your life, if you'll fix your eyes upon Him, if you'll walk with Him and and talk with Him, if you'll talk about Him to others, if, if you'll make sure that He is number one in your life, if you'll make sure that Jesus is treasured above all else, He'll begin to produce these virtues in you. Because over in John 5, we, or John 15, it says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't be a self-sacrificial friend. You can't keep your covenant. You can't, you can't walk away from your most important earthly relationships for the glory of God without his help. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's walk with him. Let's talk with him and let him bear that fruit in us. Let's let him give us that virtue. Because can I tell you this? 
If this room were full of a bunch of Jonathans, we would change the world. We would change the world.